Good morning. Everybody hear me okay? Excellent. Great to see you. Great to see so many of you here this morning. Um, I remember getting told off once. Um, actually, I was, at, um, I was at Bible college when I was being told off. And um, I was being told that the Bible clearly, the Bible clearly says that wives should submit to their husbands because men are the head of the household. It was a little bit uncomfortable, as it always is when you're being told off. And all I'd done to provoke this chap's anger is suggest that I viewed my own marriage as more of a, an equal partnership. Hardly the most controversial statement. Um, yet with a very red face, this gentleman assured me in no uncertain terms that my view was unbiblical and therefore wrong. Um, I should point out he wasn't the lecturer. This was just a, a fellow student at the time. And at the, do, at the time, I, I, I didn't do much to kind of argue back with him, partly because it was hard to get a word in edgeways, um, but also because he seemed so utterly convinced of his position that I didn't really see the point. Um, part of me did wonder, however, whether he had a wife of his own. And um, <laughs> if he did, whether he would have argued quite so vehemently in front of her as he did in front of me. But the sad truth of the matter is that his views are not that uncommon. The idea that men are supposed to make all the decisions and men are supposed to provide all of the leadership for their families has been a popular one in Christian circles for decades. For me, it seems like quite a lot of pressure. And it's due in large part to Bible verses like the one that we are going to read together today. We are in Ephesians chapter 5, if you have a Bible with you. And we're going to read from verse 21, because we looked at the first half of the chapter last week. Um, and I must confess, I have been looking forward to this section ever since we started this series, um, mainly because it is so divisive and I love a bit of drama. Um, but, you know, it's verses like this that have caused people over the years, um, and that includes my wife, to say, you know what, I really... I don't like Paul. <laughs> Jesus, fine. Jesus is great. Happy with Jesus. But, but Paul, not so much. You know, he's a, he's a misogynist. He's a, a woman hater. He's, he's anti-feminist. These sorts of things you hear. And personally, I don't think that that's true. And my hope is over the next 15 minutes, I can do, go some way at least to convincing you. Um, but if I don't, um, that's fine. We can still be friends, I promise. So let me just begin by reading to you what's in chapter 5. And if you do feel any anger rising, just hang on to that thought. We're going we're to go through it all together. So Ephesians 5 verse 21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your, hus your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. We will stop there for now. But if you do go on into the next chapter, Paul goes on to give some advice to children about obeying their parents, some advice to fathers uh, about not winding your kids up, um, something my kids would want me to pay particular attention to, Um, some advice to slaves about obeying their masters, and some advice to masters about treating their slaves well. And essentially, what Paul is doing in these verses is describing a typical first century Roman household. A husband, a wife, children, and slaves. Now, already something should be starting to feel a little bit off, about this particular type of family, but hold that thought. This verse um, forms part of what's become known as the household or domestic codes. Paul gives um, other instructions like this in Colossians chapter 3 and Titus chapter 2. And again, in those verses, he talks about husbands, wives, children, and slaves. And it's not just Paul that writes this way. Peter also talks about these household codes in 1 Peter 2, 3. He says, Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference. And wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands. And husbands, in the same way, show consideration for your wives in your life together, paying honour to the woman as the weaker sex. So, if we're going to be mad at Paul, we might need to be mad at Peter as well. But there does seem to be some kind of a a common theme here. Something seems to be going on in our New Testament. And historically, it's these verses or household codes that have been used to reinforce a patriarchy or male headship. And if you're not familiar with the term patriarchy, it just means um, it's a system basically where men have all of the power um, and women are largely excluded. And so what do we do with these instructions? Do we just say, well, it's in, it's in the Bible, so you've got to do it, didn't you? It's there. Or is there something more going on? Is there a better way of reading these verses? Well, the first thing we need to take note of is that a typical first century Roman household isn't really the same as a typical 21st century household that we might recognise, at least not in our corner of the world. When we think of a family unit today, we might imagine one or two parents, maybe two or three kids, cat, dog, goldfish, maybe a, uh, an old relative that's moved back in to help look after the kids, something like that, something like the Simpsons or um, the Dumfies from Modern Family. Any Modern Family fans in? No, none of it is great. It's really, yeah, it's a good sitcom. I recommend it. 
It's one of my favourites. But it's sort of, sort of typical sitcom fashion. Um, parents argue over how to bring up the kids. There's some power struggles at work and at home. The, the kids get into all sorts of hijinks as they push the boundaries of family life. But at the end of the day, they always come back together, united by the love that they have for each other. Typical sitcom family stuff. But this idea of a family would have made no sense whatsoever in a first century context. TV shows look really different back then. Because <laughs> in a first century Roman context, the man was seen as the ruling patriarch of his family. Marriages were often arranged based on economic circumstances. There was no like falling in love with your high school sweetheart. Wives legally had to submit to the authority of their husband. Unmarried women were expected to submit to the authority of their fathers. And if their father had died, you just had to choose the nearest living male relative. Women couldn't own any property, run any businesses in their own right, conduct any legal or financial transactions. They always needed a man to act on their behalf. And the wife, and sometimes wives... Um, did hold a slightly higher position in the household than the slaves, but they were still essentially seen as the property of the husband. There were no power struggles to be had here. Similarly, a father was seen as having ultimate authority over his children. Even after they were grown and had families of their own, they were required to submit to his will. And if there were any hijinks or pushing of the boundaries, he was allowed to beat them in the same way that he could beat his wife or slaves. And he could do all of that under the Roman law, because the family was essentially seen as a microcosm of Roman society at large. The family unit had to reflect what was going on in the wider world, and in the wider world, men had all of the power. They ruled, women didn't. So that's what the family had to look like. So hardly the kind of happy-go-lucky sitcom families that we see on our TVs today. And because these first century family values were protected by law, anybody who was seen as breaking them by perhaps raising the status of women or children or slaves could find themselves in serious trouble. And what's interesting is that that was exactly what was happening in the early church. Instead of meeting in public spaces where the men gathered, the early church gathered in the home, the domain of the women. Worse than that, the early church had female leaders and other undesirable folks. Roman authorities noted in their letters and journals, often with derision, that the church seemed to be made up of women, slaves, and the uneducated and the poor. The growing family of Christ, it seems, looked quite different to a Roman family. And that was a problem. And so when Paul writes to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a a hugely charged political statement. It's a a dangerous anti-establishment rhetoric. No doubt only spoken of in hushed terms amongst the early believers, because it undermined the qualities, the values of the day. How? By promoting equality. Equality in the home. And so what about 
Peter and Paul's household codes? What about Ephesians 5? Does that support the idea of Roman family values? Or does it actually subvert them? Well, if we read it alongside other texts that existed at the time, we start to notice some key differences. For example, the first thing Paul says here is, submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. In a patriarchal society, the idea of the man submitting to anyone other than perhaps another man of a higher rank was unthinkable. And yet here was Paul suggesting that out of reverence for Christ, who, as he writes in Philippians, made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, that they do just that. The Jewish historian Josephus says, The woman, says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the man. And yet here is Paul saying, submit to one another because the authority belongs to Christ. That was nice, wasn't it? (laughs) Punctuated the moment perfectly. And then in verse 22, he speaks directly to the wives, which is significant in itself because back then most writings were directed at men. Nothing was written to women. But he encourages them to submit to their husbands, which maybe at first glance does seem like he's supporting the idea of his day. But notice he doesn't suggest that they submit because they're required to by law or because they're somehow inferior to their husbands, but rather because the church submits to Christ. Again, Christ is the authority here, nobody else. Paul is taking these household codes, these ideas that existed at his time, in his day, and he's adding Jesus to the mix. He's saying, what might this look like if we add Jesus here? And then he goes a step further by putting requirements on the husbands too. In Roman law, nothing was required of the husband whatsoever. But Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just let that sink in for a moment. Men were the final authority. Whatever they said went. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You actually need to love your wife. And more than that, you need to love her like Christ loved the church. When he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Essentially, if Roman law says that you're the head of the household, fine, but you know what? You're going to do it like Jesus. That's how you're going to do it who said, whoever wants to be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Can you see how pointed this would have been? Can you see how this takes the expectations of the day and flips them on their head? I love this next bit. Paul goes even further in verse 28. He says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, that might not seem that significant to us, but back then it would have been hugely significant because women's bodies were seen as ugly, malformed because they didn't look like men's bodies. Aristotle wrote, the female is, as it were, a deformed male. Because females are weaker and colder in their nature, they should look upon the female state as being, as it were, a deformity. But Paul, by contrast, proclaims that male bodies are no more valuable or worthy than female bodies. Revolutionary, 
And again, he brings it back to Christ by saying that no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for were all members of his body. He is the final, the only authority. Paul is subverting every expectation here by raising the status of women far beyond the ideas that existed in his time and day. And if we read these verses just through our own 21st century eyes, Paul might even seem to be supporting a system of patriarchy, but to his original listeners, to those that heard it at the time, this would have been revolutionary, freeing. This is liberation theology here. Mirroring exactly what Jesus did when he lifted up the marginalized and the poor, the downtrodden and the outcast. Paul's words, they, they allowed the people to continue to live under Roman law without being arrested, but with a fresh perspective. Suddenly, Jesus was at the center of this. And instead of the instructions being addressed only to men, they're directed to everyone. Husbands, wives, children, slaves, everybody is included. Everyone has value. Everybody matters in the kingdom of God. And yes, he does encourage wives to submit to their husbands as they were required to by law. But he asks husbands to do the same thing by sacrificing their lives for their wives. Remember verse 21, submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. And so I think if we just choose to view Paul's words here as supporting patriarchy, we miss the point. Peter and Paul didn't invent the household codes. They aren't rules that were given to them by God for the church. That wasn't what they were. They were simply speaking into the systems that existed in their day. We need to think of this like, um, like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, wives submit to your husbands, but I say to you, don't do it out of fear, but do it because the church willingly submits to Christ who gave himself up for her. You've heard it said, husbands are the head of the household, but I say to you, they must mimic Jesus in his self-sacrificing, servant-hearted leadership. You know, in our time, now, today, the, the legal requirement for women to submit to their husbands doesn't exist. And that is a good thing. Truly, really, it is. In the same way that it's a good thing that we don't have slaves as a part of our family household. We have moved on. Things are, are better now. Not, not perfect, but better. And so what we need to do in our modern families is ask, how can we as husbands, wives, children, men, women of God, uh, live and love like Jesus in our context, in our time, in this place? Wives, what does it look like for you to love your partner like Jesus? Husbands, what does it look like for you to love your partner like Jesus? To love your children like Jesus? As men and women who belong to a church family, what does it look like to love each other like Jesus? Never mind who's submitting to who, that's gone. That's what Peter and Paul were dealing with. We have other issues on the table. We have other issues to deal with. Personality clashes, power dynamics. You know, there's, there were no power dynamics in, in the first century. The men were in charge. That was it. End of story. Perhaps today, more than ever, we need to hear, submit to one another. Don't stand on your, your own rights, or whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Time constraints and busyness. Wow, that's a huge one for us today, isn't it? We're all so busy all the time. 
Do we make enough time for each other? Do we value our relationships as much as Jesus values us? Stress. Stress over finances. Stress over unemployment. How can we help each other through the challenging seasons of life with the same kindness and the same compassion that Jesus showed to us? Anger, abuse, domestic violence. You know, some of us might need to get some professional help to to deal with our own mental well-being in order to begin to love our partner and ourselves like Jesus loves us. Marriages and just relationships in general are tricky, aren't they? We don't know for certain whether or not Paul was even married himself. But he at least recognised that every situation had the power to be transformed when Jesus was added to the mix. He recognised that every situation had the power to be transformed when Jesus was added to the mix. I wonder if the the band would come and join me on stage just to get ready to to lead us. I want to finish a little bit differently this morning. I want to finish by um, reading you a portion of scripture. And it's... um, it's a bit of scripture that's it's often read at weddings. It seems to be the number one verse that gets read um, at weddings. And I'm going to read it slowly, carefully, prayerfully. Um, and as I do, if you feel comfortable to do this, I'd, I'd really love you just to, to close your eyes. Um, you're not going to miss anything. And just listen to the words. And as you listen to the words, just ask yourself, Is this the sort of love that exists in my relationships? Because Paul, the sort of love that he's describing here, is essentially the love of Christ. And as we ask ourselves, how do we love our partners and each other and the people that we know and our friends and our families with the love of Jesus, this is the sort of love that we need to have in our hearts. And it's a real challenge, I think. And as you hear those words and and consider whether that's the love that you have, maybe turn that into a prayer. And ask God to give you more of that love, that that might overflow out of you and into the relationships that you hold and have with each other. So let's just, let's just close our eyes, and I'm going to read this nice and slowly. If I speak in the tongues of men, or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. 
keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. God, our Heavenly Father, I pray that our relationships with one another, whether they be marriages, relationships, friendships, our church family, would reflect the love of Jesus. God, that you would make us patient and kind. You would keep us from envy and boasting. We would not be proud or dishonor others. Father, that we would not be self-seeking. We would keep no record of wrongs but we would rejoice with truth. Father, that we would protect, trust, and hope together in your love. And in Jesus' name we pray.